This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Did you read with Tim Montgomery? Hello and welcome to another edition of Did You Read the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery and this week I'm joined by Times columnists Matthew Paris and David Aronovich and our parliamentary sketch writer Anne Treneman. Spain's King Juan Carlos was respected in the 1980s for his brave refusal to support a coup against democracy. That respect has been squandered, and hence in part the abdication. But I wonder if we British are being a bit smug at pointing this out. The fading of British republicanism in recent decades has been hugely dependent on the growing personal popularity of our particular queen. Our real monarchists are probably a minority, Most of us are firstly Elizabethists. Woe betide our monarchy if we ever really got a stinker on the throne. The Newark by-election on Thursday is a genuinely interesting contest. My contention, and polls seem to back it up, is that the Euro elections were a UKIP high point. As UKIP has grown, so the proportion of people alarmed by them has grown too. But the media appreciation of this fact has been slow in developing. If the Tories hold on to Newark with any degree of comfort, then the understanding may catch up with reality. He's back. I thought that Tony Blair had abandoned UK politics for a wider world stage. But suddenly, with his Middle East role looking as if it's getting smaller every passing day, he's impossible to avoid at home. UKIP, Europe, immigration, is there nothing he doesn't have an opinion on? You just try and avoid the man. But why? I suspect that, in the end, it's something to do with a job for him. (laughs) Well, we'll come back to your topic later, Anne, but we're going to start with... um, Yours, Matthew. We have popes retiring early now. We have three monarchs across Europe retiring early. And you wonder whether actually the popularity of our own monarchy in Britain is a a little bit more to do with the Queen than it is to do with the institution. Well, I've lived long enough to remember when I was very much younger, republicanism was a real issue in, in Britain. And there were Republican Labour MPs. There was Willie Hamilton. And while many people didn't feel as strongly as him, when you were my age, when I was uh, the age that young people are now, (laughs) I I would probably have been able to get this sentence out better than I now can. (laughs) But uh, young people in those days, we, we would have been Republicans. It certainly wouldn't have been cool to say we were monarchists. 
And I don't think that's got anything to do with the change in the theory. I think it's just because Elizabeth gradually has become more and more and more popular and respect for her has grown. But I, I think it would be a mistake to say that that means the British respect monarchy as an institution. That would be tested if we, we got a real stinker on the throne. And if we ever did, I think we'd probably react as Spaniards have and... Um, their monarch might have to react as King Juan Carlos has had to do. Because mm, on, on Monday night in Spain, after the uh, abdication, there was the streets in Spain were not necessarily full, but I think tens of thousands of people were saying, we want to elect our head of state. You think that would be possible in, in Britain after Queen eventually goes? There's only one reason why we wouldn't go for that, and that is we, we wouldn't like an elected head of state either. Mm. And the prospect of... Betty Boothroyd or, or Michael Martin, some <laughs> retired common speaker being the president. I think not Nigel Farage, oh. sure. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. no. <laughs> no, we stick to the monarchy, A, because we like our present monarch, and B, because we can't think of anything better. And you don't think um, any of the heirs to the throne possibly qualify as, to use your expression, possible stinkers? No, actually, I don't. No, no. no. I mean, Prince Charles sometimes seems to make errors of judgment but his his goodwill and his intelligence his his idealism uh, is really not in question i think he's quite exceptional so Anne, coming from outside of the uk and um as an american how do you see the uh, popularity of Britain's well i think that monarchy? i mean i can remember a time when they were extremely unpopular i mean after diana's mm. funeral mm. and and the royals complete inability to deal with that event and do you remember I mean yes. it was real sort of um, I mean Tony Blair had to step in <laughs> now there's an elected head of state <laughs> anyway um, but um, more soon I, but, and you know really ever since she jumped out of the airplane in the James Bond thing at the Olympics yeah. she's 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 in she's in you, you do but, know you know, she didn't tomorrow's, you, the, <laughs> tomorrow's the Queen's um, tomorrow's the Queen's speech uh, we're recording on yeah, Tuesday. Yeah, I sorry. Say. So tomorrow's yes, the Queen's yes. speech, and so we'll be seeing the Queen. And mm. unusually, the last time, and I'm sure this time, Prince Charles will probably be there as well. And um, that's something that's happening. She's handing over more and more of her things, and she is going to kind of, I think, try and do a transition, which is a quite an unusual concept <laughs> in terms of these things. So I think she's quite a wise woman. Okay, so so David, when Queen Beatrice of the um, the Netherlands resigned, abdicated about a, a year ago, you wrote a column for the Times saying maybe this was something we should consider in in Britain. But it's not going to happen, is it? I don't think Queen Elizabeth II is going to no, abdicate. She takes her vows very seriously. Oh, I mean, it's, I don't think it's I don't think it's fair to the other monarchs to suggest that they didn't take <laughs> them seriously. I mean, I think it. I, I honestly do think it's archaic to say that by taking your vows seriously, you have to keep on going until you're senile, uh, and so on. And that was and that was essentially my objection. Funnily enough, they partially covered this by getting Charles to do more kingly stuff, yeah. but not actually calling him king. He steps in for the queen more and more often. We're going to see a lot of that during the course of the next year. In a way, she's found another. She's found a kind of slightly different way of doing the same thing but the problem for the monarchy is it simply delays the moment which is inevitable uh, which is when there is a change of monarchy and we get to test the proposition I'm prepared to bet this I'm prepared to bet that demonstrations against the monarchy after the Queen for whatever reason goes and Charles takes over will be absolutely minimal 
uh, absolutely minimal, partially for the reasons that Matthew says, but actually those people who are monarchists or who quite like the monarchy, though a minority, there are quite a lot of them, those people are absolutely convinced Republicans, I think there are very, very few. I, w I expect we'll get a sort of de facto regency where Charles won't be declared the regent, but, but he will do more and more and the Queen will do less and less. I was just wondering, it would be nice if Times columnists could go in the same way. We wouldn't actually be <laughs> fired or abdicate, but we, there would be a sort of growing regency where the column would appear under your name, but in fact other people would have... Would you have done have, it. You can have a contributor thing at you, the end. I've been doing that for years. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, move on to um, our uh, second topic. And I should say, by the way, the articles that um, David Aronovich, for example, wrote on the uh, future of the monarchy will put up on the Times.co.uk Common Central. And if you're a Times subscriber, you can read those articles there. But our second topic is yours, David, and um, we are recording this before the Newark um, by-election, but the opinion polls do seem to suggest that it's going to be a relatively comfortable Tory win, and you think this could mark a real high point for UKIP fever, and it's downhill all the way thereafter for, for Nigel Farage. Yeah, Anne was talking earlier about the ubiquity of Tony Blair, but actually the ubiquity of Tony Blair has been but a tiny thing compared with the ubiquity of Nigel Farage. Um, in fact, all of us have known that you only have to say the words Nigel Farage and you get an audience uh, practically uh, immediately. Now, of course, because they won the European election, uh, it came first party with 27% of the vote, uh, and it was declared last Sunday. This has been the moment in which people have talked about essentially. It's a bit like when the Italian Communist Party got more votes than the Italian Social uh, the Christian Democrats. We're talking about the surpasso, uh, mm. this kind of surpasso moment, this kind of moment of incredible breakthrough. But actually... When you interrogated the figures, another picture began to emerge. Well, I've been looking at the YouGov statistics, the YouGov polling organization statistics, uh, comparing 2009 with now. And what it shows is that on the most key indicators about UKIP, the majority of the population have turned against them. They are now much more hostile to UKIP than they were by majority. They are more inclined, not by a majority, uh, more people are now saying that they would stay in the EU than would leave, certainly compared with 2009. And there is less hostility to some of the key ingredients of immigration. Still an overall desire for yeah. what people call greater control, but nevertheless, therefore on UKIP's main indicators, it's losing ground actually with a substantial section of the British population. Now, and here ends, here this ends, if we expect Thursday night is a victory for the Conservative Party, and I cannot believe that I'm sitting here wanting a Conservative government to win a by-election, but nevertheless, we, we, the situation. We'll remi 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 no, no, remind is, you of these words, the, David. Here's the situation, this is <laughs> the situation I am. I think that's the point at which the media understanding of where we really are with UKIP may actually catch up with the reality of it. And when you say that they're sort of past their, you know, their peak and they're going to, to fade, we know they're never going to win a general election. We may only ever win a handful of F MPs if that but are you sort of thinking they're going to fade completely to sort of three or four percent or are they going to be somewhere causing trouble at eight nine percent no, in no, the no. poll we've we, we've had a, a fourth party possibility for a very long time in British politics and mm. I wrote about this when suggesting that we should move to the alternative vote to take account for the fact that increasing numbers of people would go mm. for four third and then fourth parties and so on and the system doesn't accommodate it but to really actually break through in our system you need a fairly significant degree of support but that wasn't also the point the point is also uh, actually one aimed at you tim uh, in oh a funny kind of a way which is that 
the moderate opinion in this country does not lend itself mm. towards the UKIP position. And therefore, that's a very big warning for those Tories who are seduced, not you, of, by the idea of trying to have something to do with UKIP and bring them back in. You mm. will pay a big price if you try to do that. Yeah, well, I think the fact that I think the poll that you quote from UKIP, although the 50% now are saying that they find they don't, they have negative views of UKIP, does make the idea of a UKIP Tory pact very dangerous for mm. For the Conservatives and you, I think there's slight wish fulfillment going on here because um, I mean, for starters, I mean this is a sixteen thousand Tory majority in Newark. I mean, you know, if you could, <laughs> I mean, it is that would be that's almost a colossal feat. I think we yeah, haven't like by any, we haven't seen the end of Farage at all. He has a whole plan. He's a very he's a very good sort of planner and organizer when he actually got serious a few years ago. Until then, they were just had a lot of fun in the pub that I could ascertain. But, you know, I could actually see when he started to get organized. And he also has something like, I've been talking to people in Newark this week, and they, what they all like about him is that they, they say, oh, I can talk to him. He sounds like me. Mm. He can listen to me. And a lot of our other politicians, we all kind of know. But I mean, David Cameron has very little contact with actual real people these days. Nick Clegg probably has way too much, but he is a spent force, I think, at the moment. And, um, and, and Ed Miliband is having all sorts of difficulties on that. So I think Nigel Farage is actually fulfilling this thing, which is important, which is actually about people feeling they can talk to a politician about what, pro what problems they have. I agree it is important. And I'm not as uh, confident as David that UKIP will uh, disappear, although I wish they would as much as he does. But it, it may be that that great advantage that Nigel Farage has, that he can talk the language of ordinary people or what they think to be their Although language. Although he's completely not ordinary guy, no. I have to say. But, that, <laughs> but that, 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 that presentational advantage that he has may now have been exploited almost to its full. There may be no further that that can take him. Uh, uh, past the point when well, people begin to ask what he would actually do in government and when they do, that will fade. Do you think it was a big mistake, uh, Matthew, that he himself didn't go for Newark and fight it or do you think it was a wise... Uh, why don't we all be wise after the event? Let's wait. Uh, if, you, <laughs> if you get missed by a couple of thousand, we'll all say he was chicken and if only yeah. he'd stood, he'd have won. Well, if they, if they miss by a lot, we'll say that was very wise of him not to stand. <laughs> I think he'll... One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. 
Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. End up standing in, in Dunnet, in Kent. He, he's in lived in Kent election. his whole life. In, mm. Yeah, for the general election. Mm. He said, his life in Kent is very him, that he has actually doing that link between where you're from and your constituency. That's something very old-fashioned. That's very him, and people will like that. So, I mean, he's, he's canny in kind of a way that um, you got to give him credit for, I even though I would think. I think you're wildly overestimating. I've him, been sketching man. him for like seven, eight years. I mean, forever. Poor you. I have watched him go through all sorts of stuff, and um, he is an operator. And I think the way he makes himself be ordinary, but is nothing near ordinary. I mean, he's really not. He's an extraordinary workaholic, mm. sort of protest politician, stockbroker guy. Loves Europe, by the way. Absolutely loves Europe. Doesn't like the EU, but loves Europe. Um, I mean, it's just interesting. I mean, obviously, I, I find it interesting. <laughs> Maybe other people find it frightening. And, and, and even if you're right, what you said at the beginning, David, that 50, 55% of people have a negative view of him, it seems that 10, 15, 20, maybe even 25% of people think very positively towards him, and that might make him an enduring phenomenon, might it not? Well, no, if we had a different electoral system, then you can see ways in which it would. I mean, again, coming back to you, you've written uh, rather nicely about the, what would happen if you could have a realignment of British politics, mm. uh, and there is certainly a role for a more right-wing party which would incorporate sections of the Conservative Party who actually have more in common mm. with Nigel Farage than they do with David Cameron, and we can see the same. Some Liberal Democrats would sit very comfortably and have with David Cameron and George, George Osborne and so on. And we, but we're not going to see that. So actually, you have to deal with the coalitions that you've got. And Nigel Farage has to form a coalition off to his right, by and large. And that's a very, in the end, it's quite a limiting place to be in politics. How do you um, feel about advocating, having advocated a voting system that would actually have given UKIP the chance of a real breakthrough? Well, because it would actually have given all kinds of people the chance of uh, a breakthrough in that sense. But I don't, I suppose, I suppose I don't think that the far right in British politics is worth more than about 15%. And it would have allowed the Conservative Party, I mean, I, I believe in the politics now of coalition. I think don't think that we can get to back to the situation very easily, whereby one party will be able to claim sufficient legitimacy as a result of its as a result of its polling to form a government on its own well if that's going to be the case then i suppose my system my belief is going to be that people's votes will end up going where they would want it to go probably either in a center right or center left coalition okay, can i sort of throw that question that you asked to david sort of reverse it and send it back to you matthew because if we have ed miliband elected with 33, 34% of England's votes, 35, 36% of UK votes at the next general election. It was the second time in three general elections when Labour have been elected with barely a, a third of the, the vote. You and I have been long supporters of the two-party uh, electoral system, first-past-the-post. Can first-past-the-post continue to command authority when there isn't really a two-party system anymore? It will depend how small the reach of the major parties shrinks to. At the moment, I think it still can. Uh, the day may come when it can't, and you and I will have to, would have to rethink our positions. And, and, and a situation where Labour wins, how many times would they have to win on 35% of the vote for us to begin to of course, worry about such that. a Labour government would collapse so quickly that I wouldn't be too worried. 
who gets the fake answer. <laughs> a real politician's answer. And let's finish with your topic, please. And Tony Blair is is back on the is back on the scene. What's he up to? Oh, well, first of all, can I just say that he does Tony Blair. He does. He sounds like Roy Bremner doing Tony Blair now. <laughs> just, he's been gone for slightly too long. So. It, when you hear him on the radio, you think, ah, it's Roy Bremner. And then all of a sudden, then you hear that, you know, that like, first of all. And, you know, first of all, he's like, all of a sudden he cares about us again, having completely not cared about us for many years, who so had been gallivanting all over the world. In his this concept of him doing the Middle East peace, the man who took us to Iraq, is uh, kind of fascinating, I think, for psychoanalysts. But anyway, so he's back. Not not working out so well, that Middle East peace. No, that, that's... Uh, not been completely successful. Things don't not work out well for Tony Blair. No. They, they just aren't talked about anymore. Yeah, <laughs> Things have got in the way. And I, I find it quite interesting when I heard him talking about Chilcot because I thought, ah, he wants us to love him again. I mean, I'm completely up in arms that Chilcot is not being published in full and I can't understand what the hell's going on. And, um, and, but I thought it was very interesting that he came in and said, hey, it's nothing to do with me. Kind of Completely fascinating. So I thought, oh, he wants us to love him. Then he's popping up and has all these opinions about everything. Immigration and Europe in particular. Yes. And, you know, giving what it was referred to as a keynote, the most overused word in the English language speech yesterday, on, um, on Europe and immigration. And I just sort of think, well, what does he want? And the only possible thing can be <laughs> something that's going to make him um, have something to do. So I think he wants a job. Um, I would suspect it's in Europe. <laughs> and um, he, he completely denies this, of course. Yes, that means that means it's almost certainly true. I mean, I find denial denial is almost the best way of finding something that's true in politics. Um, I'm sure that I'm right on that. Well, yes. well, Ma- Ma- Matthew Parrish, <laughs> you wrote in your notebook the day or so after he appeared on the Today program talking about immigration. You had a, a very strange out-of-body experience. Oh, don't remind me. It's awful. You were in complete agreement. Can with you him imagine on that lying in bed and agreeing with Tony Blair? The pain of it. No. It was just, just, <laughs> just terrible. I, I, I still, I'm, I'm in need of psychotherapy after the experience. No, I, I thought it was right what he said about immigration. It was nice to hear um, a, a senior voice in British politics without any hums and ha's and s- saying that uh, attacking immigrants was not a very nice thing to do. David Aronovich, there's, if you've listed or rounded up the number of columnists who had nice things to say about Tony Blair, there would be very few. No, but Anne's, Anne's very representative. And although she invokes psychoanalysis for Tony Blair, I'm not at all sure that the psychoanalysis isn't necessarily invoked for the people who write about him. <laughs> um, <laughs> however, however I'd, I'd like to make a slightly different point, um, uh, because, partially because... Otherwise, we're going to end up talking about Iraq, and I really can't bear it anymore. Um, which <laughs> is this? Which is which is this? Well, actually, I think you'll find actually, that he has yeah, an appetite yeah. for doing it, no, and so don't no, I, so, I so don't provoke him. Um, it's just the rest of us who don't want to get into it. But um, this big question arises: we have younger and younger leaders 
which means that they leave office younger and younger. Now, I've seen, as, as have other people, I've seen Clinton wandering around the world in the years since, full of ideas, full of vim. He looks better now than he did when he was president, Bill Clinton, and so on. And the, the question ve- is... the vegan diet. Uh, I think it may be the <laughs> vegan diet. And the question is, what are you supposed... What are these people supposed to do? Uh, if you listen to Anne, what you'd imagine is that he should just die. No, no, no. He should oh, no, 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 seriously, Anne, that's your... If he talks about... If he has an opinion about anything, then he shouldn't have an opinion oh, wait, about wait, wait, it. If he does anything, okay, he shouldn't be doing around, it. So been, you think he should go if to a If he kept beach. on as an MP, if, or if he'd gone to the Lords, if he'd contributed to British politics, speeches... Oh, you know, I, to going to the Lords. Okay, the Lords. Okay, but you know what I mean. Politics. If he had been part of the British political scene like for the past Brown. few years... Gordon Brown, possibly the exception that's proving the rule. But anyway, all I'm saying is... Let let Anne finish, I just feel that if he... I do think there's something very strange about someone zooming in virtually from... Mars at this point um, and all of a sudden full of opinions yet again and I just if he'd had opinions the whole time or if he'd been contributing he does have this weird way of zooming in and out and I don't know. Yeah, but the thing is, he irritates the hell out of us, doesn't he? And so, whatever he did, we wouldn't like. But I've, David raises. I like his hand gestures. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. I've been missing them. Da- da- David raises a, a, a wider point, though. A historian put this to me, and I've not been able to confound it. No British Prime Minister has ever done anything significant after being Prime Minister. I believe that's almost literally true. We can think of a few little things they've done, but no, nothing significant. Now, can that be right in a day when Prime Ministers are retiring in their 50s? And not just Prime Ministers, Presidents. In two Mm. years' time, Barack Obama will cease to be the American president. Is he going to do nothing for the rest of his life? What age will he be? 54 or something? I can't, I can't even remember. It's well, in his case, he might actually... Because he can really write, so he might actually write some brilliant Oh, come words. on, Anne. No, no, but know, I know I, what you mean. But I'm not, saying that there's, I'm not saying that everyone should go off to some old-age home for former presidents and prime ministers. I'm really saying that... There, Tony Blair I agree with you that there, there should be a way of people contributing and helping. And... Um, and, and kind of giving back um, that is a normal, that is like within the bounds of normality. Do we have any models of ex-presidents, ex-prime ministers that would be particularly Jimmy admire? Carter. Jimmy Carter, I think. He hasn't been completely useless since being president. Some would say he's been better at being an ex-president than he was at being president. See, in America, you, done get a lot li- in the you get the library. Yeah. Well, That's yeah. key. Yeah. You get to have your library. I mean... You do get to have your library in America, and then you can have you can choose your role. I mean, Bill Clinton is actually, I mean, helped hugely by Bill Gates. I mean, they've done all this incredible work yeah. around the world with uh, ch- children's health and maternal health and things like that, and you know, education. So, I think there is roles out there. I think Tony Blair just there was this thing, and uh, maybe I'm being unfair, but he did seem to be quite interested in earning as much money as possible, as far away from Britain as possible, for a period of time. Now he's done that, and now he's back. And what do you think David Aronovich, Ed Miliband makes of Tony Blair's re-emergence on the scene? Does it help him to have someone arguing for the Labour cause or does it remind all of us how inadequate Ed Miliband is as Labour leader compared to Tony Blair? If you can see that there might be a few people who look back to the days of Tony Blair and say that was good and we were well off then and that was Labour, then it's an advantage. Which is true, I think, of if, more British people than who are opposed to him. The, the people, if not the columnists, still have quite a no, good view of Tony Blair. No, 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 that, that's true. If you think um, that Tony Blair is Iraq, etc., then in that case you don't want him around. If you think Tony Blair is going to be a contrast with your own, let's say, lesser charisma, 
then that might be a, a slight problem for you. I think on balance, he'd probably rather that Tony Blair was dead. <laughs> <laughs> Just like Anne. I, don't think <laughs> I, I, I forgot to say something, and I need to say this possibly. Um, is that one of the things I do miss about Tony Blair is the way uh, and the way he does politics is how he can take, do the small and the large at the same time. He has a way of making ideas go global that is really unusual, and I miss that kind of large way of thinking. Which you know, David Cameron is quite sort of straightforward in his goals, and actually in in general. Um, doesn't want you know government's not about da- doing more it's about doing David less. Cameron very lucky that he is up against Deb Miliband and not Tony Blair at the next election Matthew yes he is and uh, Tony Blair actually has something of, of what Anne was saying that Nigel Farage had at his best to- Tony Blair does talk like an ordinary human being oh yes and he's uh, got uh, huge he, charisma he, yes he, he does he, he does come across as someone that you could sit down in a pub with and and, and uh, talk to and, and uh, Ed Miliband plainly doesn't. It's a kind of hypernormality, uh, and the yes, same is true with is. Farage in a way, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, etc. Which is, which is, which is, which is, you're not, you're in no way normal, uh, but you're, you're in no way normality is to is the, to make the simulacrum mm. of of mm. normality. It's very, very peculiar. David, Matthew, Anne, I'm afraid we're going to have to stop it there. Thanks also to Dave McGuire, a producer. And most of all, of course, to you for tuning in. Do go to iTunes to subscribe to this podcast. And if you are a Time subscriber and want to read some articles that provide background to what we've been discussing, do go to thetimes.co.uk slash commoncentral. And you can also leave comments there on anything you've heard. Thanks for listening. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.